This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is Amy Vitale, an award-winning National Geographic photographer and Nikon ambassador. What keeps me going back every single time, even in the middle of the war zones, even in the middle of these very difficult situations are, that's where I meet the most incredible people. Amy has visited over 100 countries, documenting the horrors of war and the good work being done to protect endangered species. Amy, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. So tell us, uh, where did you grow up? And tell us a little bit about your childhood. I grew up in South Florida. Okay. It feels like the other end of the world. It pretty much is, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) In a lot of ways, yes. And I, as a child, was a pretty shy, introverted, gawky person, really, until I was a young woman. More than anything, I was curious about the world. And I think we all grew up in little bubbles. And I actually, I remember in South Florida thinking to myself as a child, there's got to be more than this. More than this. (laughs) Yeah. And so at what stage did you start to kind of scratch that itch and get out there? Pretty early. Pretty early. Yes. As a teenager, I ended up living with friends in different states for the summer, getting jobs and working. And then by the time I was 18, I moved to Europe and was hitchhiking and traveling around and got a job in the Czech Republic right after the Velvet Revolution. So right after the wall came down, it was an incredibly exciting time to be there. Soviet troops were leaving Prague And I was there that day they flew out and it was just this very, I mean, I look back now, particularly because of the war in Ukraine and think back, you know, I got to, I ended up going and living in the Czech Republic and working there as a journalist. That was one of my first jobs. And I met Václav Havel, who was then the the president of, Mm -hmm. of the Czech Republic. And it was this moment where you just felt like everything was possible. And there was so much hope. People were so happy. You know, this just a time of excitement towards the future. Just it actually is very haunting when I look back now and putting that into the context of that moment when you just realize, wow, we missed this opportunity. So this was your first sort of immersive moment as a journalist and you're exposed to this sort of hugely positive focused emotional set right and 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 then tell us from there how you started to cover conflict and war and some of the most horrible periods of human history well i mean i just skipped over a lot but i mean i actually should back up and I went to university. I came back and went to school in North Carolina. Okay, so after the... I went there and studied there and then came and was in North Carolina. And it was so surprising to me to... It was a very different upbringing than I had. And I learned a lot about our country. Okay, And it was really very interesting to be able to have that lens of living abroad, coming back and seeing 
You know, that's one thing I think that living in other places teaches you. It's more it teaches you more about your own country mm. than about that country yeah. you're visiting. You come back with a fresh set of eyes on everything and a different way of seeing and it definitely you know, those four years shaped a lot of who I am today. That's when I really began going from being the shy, introverted young kid to taking my camera and my camera was my passport because I realized that having that camera allowed you to get into spaces that people, depending on how you approach people, people actually love to be listened to, to be seen, to Mm. be heard. And it was this big aha moment that I could take the attention away from myself and focus on others and really listen to them and learn. And it just gave me access to any world I really wanted to go and explore. And that's what I found so interesting that even in North Carolina, I was in the Research Triangle Park, which has the highest at the time, it had the highest number of PhD, very educated people living in this. And at the same time, there was extreme poverty. And I would ride my bicycle through neighborhoods and actually got the courage to go and knock on people's doors and start photographing portraits of people that I was so amazed at the diversity of of humanity <laughs> in this tiny little town. And, and somehow the camera gave me quite a lot of courage. You took this upon yourself to just explore, get out there, m- meet people. And, and you said the camera was your passport. Was it sort of your, your entry point to conversations? I mean, you said you got up the courage to knock on these doors. Like you knock on this door, somebody opens. Well, what happens then? It's wonderful to be a student of yeah, anything. It is, isn't it? People will do a lot for you. <laughs> they if you're a will. Student. There's this innocence and understanding and people wanting to help. Yeah. And it's actually it was easier than gaining access to some situations. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> and so I definitely realized that. And I was just, you know, I had a fairly tumultuous childhood. Mm-hmm. And I think I just wanted to understand the world. Yeah. And really You know, I really mean that. I just was insatiably curious and wanted to understand (laughs) why I was the way I was and why the world was the way that it was. And I wanted to understand, you know, I I actually think that there was essentially a lot of segregation still in North Carolina. And I, I was able to, you know, gain the trust of people of all religions, colors, you know, whatever. And I just went and asked if I could take people's portraits and I would talk to them and I'd bring prints back for them Mm -hmm. and visit. And that was the other thing I learned pretty early on is that you have to go slow and take time to gain people's trust and allow them to really open up and share with you. And then once they do, it is so profoundly moving. And I just decided that I was going to make a little project and I told them I was doing a portrait project and and I was. <laughs> yeah. And how did that set of experiences kind of lead into more formal career in journalism? You had had the previous experience in Europe. 
you're not studying journalism at university. How, how are you kind of charting your path professionally at this point? Yes, well, I was taking a couple classes in the journalism okay. school, and I had one wonderful professor who's still one of my dearest friends who saw something in me way before anybody else did, because I certainly did not have skills back then. Okay. And he said, you should apply for these grants. You mm. should apply for this. And he was opening up my eyes to all the opportunities that existed. And then he said, you know, you should apply for College Photographer of the Year. You should apply for this internship. And I did. And much to my delight and sheer horror, I got to some of them and ended up really setting down this path of becoming a news editor. Yeah. I wasn't, it was interesting. I had the passion to be a photographer back then, but I would go into the newsrooms and they could never, the people in the positions of power of hiring could mm-hmm. never envision me, this tiny girl who was pretty, you know, just, I guess they just would look at me and just write me off and say, well, you'd be a good editor. Huh. You can have the desk job. So I got hired for all the desk jobs. But they, they couldn't see you in the field. Correct. Uh, that was sort of an assumption about your strength or your, 100%. your toughness. 100%. Huh. I mean, it was amazing. And That's that has, formative, yeah. It has persisted literally for decades into my career. Mm. And I love the fact that everything went digital because that opened up so much access for me. Because I would just go and cover things and be told that I didn't belong there, that I shouldn't be there. And I spell my name in an unusual way. And very often I would just email people a letter saying, I'm working on this story, here are some images, have a look. And nine times out of 10, I would get them published. And then I would show up for face-to-face meetings and people would inevitably say, I thought you were a man. Wow. A lot. That happened a lot. That is interesting, kind of given the experience you had in North Carolina of knocking on these doors and having the courage to forge relationships with strangers and document their stories in a real intimate way. I mean, that takes not only courage, but a a type of character. It's interesting that that those families that would eventually be welcoming, but also kind of corporate journalistic apparatus would sort of say, no, she doesn't have what it takes. I think there's two takeaways from these stories. Yeah. One is I think that most of us can can go about doing what we really dream about, but the the hardest thing is believing in yourself. Mm-hmm. And that very often, yes, all those people told me, no, you can't do it. But I, I think that's something that can stop a lot of us when you hear those those thoughts. You don't belong here. You can't do that. You don't have the skills. You're not tough enough. And it's actually more dangerous when you believe what they say. Mm. And so it's really, really essential to tune that noise out and just follow your heart in every situation. So how did you kind of break through in, in this professional journalism space where they had said, you know, you, you kind of need the desk job? How did you break out of that and get back into field work? <laughs> One day I just got fed up. A photographer had won a big award. I think it was a Pulitzer mm-hmm. for some horrific coverage of a war. And I remember that day they broke out a bottle of champagne and everybody was drinking and they were displaying these horrific images behind him. I was really upset. I just knew I needed to leave and that I needed to, I 
I got what I needed from that situation. I worked there for four or five years, and I learned so much, and I'm deeply grateful for that experience. But I left knowing I see where the gaps are. I think very often when I was starting, the the news industry would just react to events uh-huh. and parachute in and cover them. And I felt like there was a lack of depth to the stories and the coverage of them. And I just, at that point, I left and I started applying for grants. Okay. And I wanted to go and spend time on one story and just learn. And so that was another exciting moment when I applied for a grant to go and live in a country, a tiny country in West Africa called Mm Guinea-Bissau. And I thought I was going to stay for a few weeks. The weeks turned into months. The months turned into about half a year. And I lived with two co-wives and their children in a mud hut in a village with no running water, no electricity, no access to health care, and stayed there. And it shaped how I see the world and particularly how we describe the developing world. Mm -hmm. I learned the language Pular, and I spent my days not really taking pictures, but gathering firewood, learning how to cook over an open fire, and um, getting water, which was a big one. I loved it. I found this beautiful connection to nature. Like nature was their supermarket. Everything that we needed, everything we ate, water, the air we breathed, everything came from nature and they knew it. They knew their lives depended on it. And I think that that has always been in the back of my mind through my career is just that people with that connection to land. And I find that even here in Montana, actually. I think people understand where everything comes from so much more than a lot of more urban landscapes. And I think there is something profoundly important about being human and understanding that. And I I think that's why I call this place home. We'll be back to my conversation with Amy Vitale after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, this is Sheila Stearns, Commissioner Emerita of the Montana University System and former president of the University of Montana. You are listening to one of my favorite podcasts, A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Amy Vitale about the emotion of photography. Going back to that notion of gaps, one of those gaps, it sounds like, is some form of connection to other people, connection to landscape. So your values as a storyteller are starting to emerge. Can you see that in the moment or or is it or is it like emerging as you look back on it? Some of it was emerging in the moment. Some of it I understand better as I look back sure. on it. But I did always sense a lack of empathy mm-hmm. for the people. I mean, even the way we describe photography, go shoot that your subjects. Mm-hmm. I can't stand those words. Like very often people would take these pictures and they didn't even know the names of the people in the photographs. Right. And there was something about that that I always found deeply uncomfortable, even though I did end up doing that. I was a, I became a war correspondent for about a decade. And then I, I actually decided to go live in the middle of a conflict instead of just right. parachuting in and out. 
And I spent four years covering the war between India and Pakistan in Kashmir. And the people in my photographs were friends and people I grew to love and respect. And and it helped me understand the reality of their lives in a very different way than if I had just kind of, if I just flew in for a couple of weeks and left. That has the quality of making the work product more intimate, compelling, and probably accessible to the viewer such that the viewer can really understand or, or understand to a certain extent. At the same time, that has to take a piece of you in a profound way that just parachuting in does not. I mean, this, this work took a toll, I would imagine. It did. I actually had a moment when, I mean, I, I just... It was so heartbreaking and watching friends die. And I had to stop because I knew if I didn't that I would probably, I would probably die too. And so I came home and I told everybody that I needed to take six months off just to heal. Mm -hmm. Just when I took my break, I got a phone call Mm -hmm. from somebody I had worked with before who said, I have a job for you. And I said, I'm not working right now. And and he said, no, you'll want to take this job. And this was truly a gift from the universe. It was a job to work for the Nature Conservancy okay. and work with artists and go around and create an exhibition and a project around how the resources of this planet, where they come from and how they're used. And hmm. so I basically spent nine months photographing trees and nature and understand learning so much about indigenous communities connections to landscapes and um, and the land itself and that allowed me in that time to finally make the connection that had always been missing which was this that all those stories I had been covering about human suffering conflict you know these wars access to clean water all of these things were, connected to our environment Hmm. and that I was almost telling the end of the story because that is what we will see more of if we don't pay attention to our planet, the environment, where all of our precious resources are, how we use them, our consumption. And so I just realized that I needed to start focusing on these stories about the natural world and not just pretty pictures of nature, but the human side of the story and the connection to it. And I felt like that was always missing in a lot of the stories I was seeing and also to wildlife and that they are precious. And, you know, when you take these keystone species out of the ecosystem, everything starts to crumble. And that led me to, you know, another really important story, which is the story of the last Northern white rhinos Today, there's only two of them alive on the planet. And I began this back in 2009 when there were only eight alive, all in zoos. And there was this last-ditch effort to bring four of them back to Africa in the hopes that they would breed and they could rescue this species from extinction. Mm -hmm. And that was my beginning of my understanding of how important and critical wildlife is to all of these other stories and I started the story that I thought was going to be a story documenting extinction, which I've been documenting for 13 years. Now, in this twist of fate, 
scientists are trying to resuscitate the species and bring it back from extinction, and they now have 22 viable embryos. But that's a whole other science story that I've gone off on and continue to cover. But that was the beginning of sort of putting all the pieces together in my head of what needed to be covered. And and in some ways, covering extinction and these just amazing animals that are threatened by largely human causes, I mean, that's heartbreaking in another way. That's got to really draw from your soul in some ways. It is and it isn't because the people that I meet that are so selfless and out there on the ground protecting and and really the ones doing the dirty work to make sure that the planet is better for their children, I never read about them in the news. And I realized, oh, this is the piece I'm meant to be telling, their stories. Their stories. And that comes across in your in your stills and in your films. These people are just amazing. Aren't they? Yeah. They give me so much hope. And that is my message. You know, these these stories I'm sharing today, yes, they seem so dark. But the truth is what keeps me going back every single time, even in the middle of the war zones, even in the middle of these very difficult situations are, that's where I meet the most incredible people. It occurs to me in your travels and in all this work, you have seen a vast array of models for conservation. I mean, conservation is a contested term and a contested topic here in Montana. There's all kinds of debates about how it should and shouldn't be done. What are some of the best practices you've seen in conservation? Why do you think they're successful? The thing I've taken away from it is that it has to come from the community itself. A lot of issues, I think that there is a lot more ability to have dialogue and find solutions. And we need to do more of that. We need to really be able to be in the same room and hear each other. And even if we disagree, really listen to each other. Right. We need to also allow new ideas to evolve. And I'll give one short example. Please. One story I was covering is this indigenous-owned and run elephant sanctuary in northern Kenya. During the pandemic, they've been feeding the babies human milk formula powdered milk formula, which is very expensive, and it was being shipped in from South Africa. They began to get worried, well, what do we do if, you know, the supply chain breaks down? How are we going to feed these babies? And so they started looking around them, and they realized, well, look, the goats eat the same thing as the wild elephants. Maybe we ought to try goat milk. Hmm. And they did some experimenting and researching, and it turned out that the babies that drank the human milk formula had a 50% survival rate, but when they switched to the goat milk formula, 98% of the babies survived. So not only was it better for the planet because they didn't have to ship it from so far, Mm -hmm. it was better for the baby elephants. And then the best part of the story, all that money that was going out of the country now was going to the milk mamas. Those are the women that own the goats. Mm -hmm. And now I went with them. It was so exciting. They set up their pasture list, so they're nomadic herders. They ended up setting up bank accounts so that they have money to, you know, send their children to school for if they get sick, they have money for a rainy day. It allowed them to invest in other businesses. It was just this whole beautiful story that I realized, wow, It was because of the pandemic in this moment that must have been terrifying for everybody, right? 
These are our most transformative moments. And I share this story because I think we're in a difficult moment right now. We all know it. Let's use this moment we're in now and take it as a moment to reimagine a different way forward. How are we going to redo things in a way that creates a more equitable, sustainable world? So much more is possible, and humans are smart. We can figure some of these things out. Yeah, oftentimes some of our most innovative moments and most powerful insights come from those moments of scarcity or crisis or when your back is against the wall. In our remaining time, Amy, let's talk a little bit about vital impacts. I mean, this your, this nonprofit you've launched is off to a tremendous start. Tell us about your mission and who you're trying to help and why. So this also evolved during the pandemic, mm-hmm. but I realized that, you know, I grew up with this idea that it's a competitive world. And I've sort of grown to understand that the only way to overcome our greatest challenges are through collaborations. And so I reached out to many of my colleagues and some of the finest photographers and artists and asked them to come together behind some causes. Okay. It's actually a local printer, paper and ink studio, who are printing all of it. And it is beautiful just to feel it and hold these works of art by photographers that are sold in the finest galleries that are very difficult to get these prints to even emerging photographers who are unknown. And I just spent a lot of time carefully curating these these exhibitions and photo print sales. Mm -hmm. I believe art is a great on-ramp for activism. And we not only are bringing artists together to, you know, support different causes. I got Jane Goodall involved. Um, She donated prints. And um, the first sale we did was for conservation. The last one was for humanitarian aid for places like Ukraine and other war zones that we don't hear about, Mm -hmm. just for the people caught in the middle. And we donate all of the money we raise to these, these different causes. And now the Vital Impacts is growing. We're, we're making programming. I've been training 40 indigenous conservationists in Kenya who um, are amazing storytellers, and they just needed the tools mm-hmm. so they can tell their own stories. And then we have, I'm about to announce um, two grants I'm giving out for a photographer slash storyteller to work on a project for a year that is related to the environment because these stories take time and they need funding. And so I've been able to raise money for them. And the whole idea is like, why don't we use art to inspire and make a better world? I love it. Amy, we share a connection to one of my favorite institutions here in Missoula, the Roxy Theater and the International Wildlife Film Festival. Uh, Listeners might know that my wife, Maggie, is president of the board of the Roxy. And you have dedicated so much of your time and energy to that institution. You've got a lot of inbound requests for your time and energy at this stage of your career. How do you make choices about that? And why does the IWFF rise to the top of your list? Oh, it is. We're so lucky to have this here. It's it's extraordinary. I mean, the, uh, the, the talent that comes to Missoula and moves through Missoula is is powerful. I mean, films can change the way people see the world and show us things we never even imagined. And it's not enough just to tell stories. I think you also have to give back a little. That's the beautiful part is just the mentoring that comes along with that. So that's a critical piece of completing the circle. Sure. Amy, what do you have uh 
coming up that you're particularly excited about? I've got a couple films coming up. Yeah. I've got more print sales for different causes. You can go to vitalimpacts.org. And I'm also launching these two grants for for photographers that want to go out into the world and tell these stories. Well, Amy, this has been a, a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for your contributions in general and contributions to this community. Love to have you back maybe when one of these films come out and we can talk about it more specifically. Thank you so much, Justin. I really appreciate this. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. Social media by AJ Williams. And Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.